Race doesn't limit you from anything. It's all about I feel like they learn about race from. I teach them. Can even aspire about who you are with somebody else that looks like you. And love who you are. To love identity. This is In My Skin, a podcast about race and childhood. I'm Adam Flango. When I was growing up, I was obsessed with sports. On weekends, I would stay up until the wee hours of the evening watching highlights on SportsCenter. And eventually, it got to the point where they would just replay the episode that I just watched. Except the advertisements would be different. There was one kind of ad, though, that always seemed to pop up. It was the kind that featured somber, harrowing images of impoverished children in an African or South American country. They usually went something like this. So many girls and boys come into this world under these hopeless conditions. This is barely a place to sleep or eat, and it's certainly not a place to dream. With your help, life can change for the better for a child who faces life with so little. It's your choice. You can call now and help a child, or you can do nothing. These messages certainly aren't all bad, because yes, there are children in other countries who could benefit from donations and help. But when these are the primary messages that you receive about African countries in particular growing up, it's a problem. It omits the beauty and richness of different people and cultures. Today's guest creates art that depicts the Africa that she has known since she was a child. Elizabeth Zunon was born in Albany, New York, but spent most of the first 13 years of her life in Cote d'Ivoire, also known as Ivory Coast. Today, she is an artist and illustrator who has depicted warm, loving, and inspiring characters from countries like Cameroon, Gambia, Malawi, and Tanzania. They are the kinds of characters that she remembers from her childhood, a childhood that she remembers fondly. Racially, I identify as biracial. I grew up in the Ivory Coast, West Africa, and the word that we used to describe people like me was called metis which I think is a, a version of mestizo in Spanish. Um, and I had many friends that looked like me that had one parent that was white and one parent that was black African. So when I think of myself in the world, I think of myself as Métis, but in, in English, I guess that would that would be biracial. The, I know you uh, grew up in Cote d'Ivoire and I am wondering what, at what age did you move from the United States uh, to Cote d'Ivoire? Um, I was... Born here in Albany, New York, and I think I was probably three months old when um, my parents brought me back to Cote d'Ivoire. That's where they were living at the time, and basically, I came here to be born <laughs> to oh, get that. Oh, interesting! And then we went back. Um, my parents had been living there together for um, about four years at that time, so we lived in Cote d'Ivoire until full time, all pretty much full time until the time that I was almost 13. But we came back to Albany, New York, almost every summer to spend um, summertime with my grandparents here. So I was always kind of going back and forth, but I did most of my um, my schooling up until seventh grade in Cote d'Ivoire. So I've been here in the United States since the age of pretty much 13 or eighth grade. So how did that affect your understanding of your own race and being going from a country in West Africa to coming to the United States in this summer. It's like, how did that, you know, impact your understanding of race as a child? Um, 
as a child, when I was here in the United States in the summertime, I was with my white family and I definitely felt like there were not many people that looked like me. Um, definitely living in the United States, I, I felt like a minority back as a, as living as a child in Cote d'Ivoire, I didn't feel like I was that different than anyone else because there was just so many people that were, you know, looked exactly like me. Whenever you think about your time in Cote d'Ivoire, like what in comparing it to whenever you came to the United States as a 13 year old, was it difficult to adjust to a more permanent space of living amongst people that don't all look like you? Um, I wouldn't say that it was any kind of like a difficult adjustment. If anything, my difficulty was adjusting to like the school system and speaking English every day rather than speaking French. But, um, you know, I had my mother with me and my father with me and my little brother. So we were always a little family unit wherever we were. So uh, getting into books a little bit, you written that your mother often read books to you as a child, bedtime books. What were some of those books? What kind of books do you remember? Um, the Snowy Day was okay. very popular. Ezra Jack Keats, very popular <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> um, Cherries and Cherry Pits is another one that I really liked. Um, written and illustrated by Vera B. Williams. Good Night Moon. Um, I love you forever, or I think it's I love you forever, or I love you always, which I think we have in a couple different languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I had a bunch of books in in French and in English as a child. I was living in the Ivory Coast. I was really into um, the Babysitters Club, American series, and um, the American Girl books also. You and my, you and my sisters in the same wavelength. <laughs> yeah. Um. So whenever you were reading, whenever you look back to these books, do you? I mean, Snowy Day was kind of the the most famous example for all ages of, or for many ages of the book that they had as a child. Did you, growing up in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, did you have? Were there were there any more access to books that uh, were with featuring characters that? looked like you versus books in America? I would say yes. We had a bunch of books that had African or, you know, people of brown color as the characters in the books. We had, I mean, I went to a very nice private school, so we had access to a lot of different books. And um, definitely living in Africa, there are more books about African people and black people than living in the United States, I would say. Mm -hmm. Do you remember uh, growing up as a child, both going to and from um, Africa to the United States. Do you do you have any distinct memories of a first racialized experience? Oh. I know, it's, it's, it's a tough question. <laughs> I remember when I was in high school here in the United States, um, I, had, I was in my art class, and I don't know what project we were working on, but I had brought in a picture of myself and my mother, and one of my classmates asked you asked me, "Oh, I didn't know you were adopted." And I kind of looked at her like, "Like, what does she mean?" No, uh, uh, I didn't know how to respond. Mm-hmm. It didn't occur to me that Americans are not used to seeing people with parents of different colors, and if they see, you know, a brown child or a black child with a white mother, they immediately assume, "Oh, they must be adopted," or 
you know, that must, that must not be your, your biological child. And I was like, okay, so that's how people think. Mm -hmm. Um, it didn't offend me, but I was just confused why, first of all, why she thought that way and why she thought it would be appropriate to ask me or tell me, Oh, you're adopted. Like, you know, even if you knew someone was adopted, I wouldn't think it would be appropriate to say that to their face or ask them that bluntly. So I was just taken aback by, okay, so it's not normal for people like me to be walking around, I guess. Did, I'm wondering if your parents had any type of conversations with you about the, that, you know, things might be a little different whenever we go to visit the grandparents uh, or anything like that that you remember. No, I don't remember any of those conversations, any like warning or, or telling me to like be careful or be aware of how people might, um, might view me. I do remember, um, my mom telling me a story that when I was a little toddler in the summertime and she was pushing me around the stroller here in, in, in Albany, New York, someone came up to her and said, Oh, like bless you for adopting a little black child. And my mother once again was like, what, what is she talking about? This is my child. I carried her like she's my blood. But, um, I've heard, um, um, episodes like that, that my parents have told me, but they have never directly told me, okay, this is the way it's going to be. This is how people are going to view you. This is how we're going to like appear as a family. No, there was, I don't remember any of those conversations. Do you think about the racialized experiences of children in growing up in the United States when you're creating, or when you're illustrating books or anything like that? Or how, like, who do you, how do you think about that whenever you, because since your childhood was, a little bit different it seems than uh growing kids that grow up in the united states their entire lives yeah when i'm creating the illustrations for my books i definitely think about young children of color in the united states that are going to be looking at and reading this books these books um and my goal is to depict africans and african americans in my books in a positive light um i remember I think I was a teenager, a young teenager at a bookstore here in Albany and seeing a book that took place in Africa. And I was looking at the illustrations and I was like, well, that's not what we look like or that's not how we dress or like that just looks like a weird alien drawing to me. And I felt like whoever illustrated this book didn't do any research about the culture that they were depicting. And I thought, you know, when I when I'm working on my illustrations, I definitely don't want to make these same kind of mistakes to have a kid look at and say, well, well, that's weird or that's not correct. So I definitely want to represent, um, you know, different cultures of the world in a positive light. No, that's something that I very much noticed because I know your books have uh, touched on uh, real stories or nonfiction stories about different featuring different countries from Gambia to Cameroon to Malawi to Tanzania and they you can see that affection i think in your art your art is paints just beautiful portraits of these characters in different ways can doing doing different things um and i think it's very evident to see that you have that affection so so when so when did you were you whenever you started illustrating was that something that you that you were like this is this is what i'm going to be doing from the beginning i'm going to be you know, making sure to kind of buck these the harmful stereotypes that exist about African culture in the United States. Yeah, when I began illustrating, 
I'm sorry. Sorry, but really, I was I said uh, those stereotypes exist in, in the United States, but they also exist plenty of uh, other places too. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I got my first illustration contract, I definitely felt like okay, I'm I've got my foot in the door of this, the book publishing industry, and if I can kind of walk through the door and and stay within this um, career path that I chose, I definitely want to work towards creating beautiful books with beautiful characters of color. Um, and I think that when I graduated from art school and was looking to um, put my portfolio out there, I think I just came into the book publishing industry at, at the correct time. Um, there were books, there were interest about, there, were, there was starting to be more interest, I think, in creating books for young readers about people of color and people in Africa doing positive things. And, you know, the first couple of um, books that I illustrated, um, you know, they were looking for somebody who was an illustrator of color. And sometimes specifically they were looking for somebody who had spent time in Africa so that they could be sure to um, do the research and, and depict the African um, characters in a, in a respectable way or correct manner. So I definitely thought like, okay, I'm being given this, this role and I'm going to like really <laughs> roll with it. <laughs> so at that same, at the same token, I am, it seems it's very apparent, like I said, in your art, that the affection that you have for the continent of Africa. And, but I'm wondering also if it's something where is did you ever worry about being typecast as, oh, there's, there's an African book. We'll get Elizabeth Zunon to come in and do it. And as being as that being the only way that you can portray characters? Um, I definitely think about that, but I don't think about it as a bad thing. Um, obviously, I'm happy to have the work. I'm happy to be a working illustrator. And if they think of me for that one African thing, well, that's something that I'm proud of. And if if they think of me for that, then that means that the books that I'm putting out there, the work that I'm doing is, you know, being seen in a positive light. So even though maybe I am being typecast, I, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> the When you're writing, many of your books are from the nonfiction lens. So what what draws you to those, illustrating those kinds of stories um, as compared to a, a fictional story? Um, I love learning about people that exist in the world. And when I get a manuscript in front of me after I read it, I always try to think, what are the things that myself and this character or the story have in common? Um, oftentimes, I illustrate books about people that I have never met. So I try to draw connections between my life and their lives or their experiences and mine and see, well, if we ever met in real life, what are the things that we might be able to talk about easily? Interesting. The And can you walk me through a little bit of your process? I know you've, in your recent book that you uh, published, you'd walked through a whole lot of, uh, there's a link that we have in our show notes about the, that walks you through your process. But I'm curious as to how... Jip, you could just walk us through your process a little bit because I know every artist kind of does things differently. My illustration process, you right. mean, to create yeah. actual art? Right, yeah. Um, 
Well, first I read the manuscript and I take notes and I just jot down the first things that come into my head and I'll make little doodles or of, of images that pop into my mind as I'm reading. Um, and then I kind of um, create a storyboard for the book. So usually it's a 32 page book and I'll take a big piece of paper and draw um, 16 rectangles and um, draw a line down the middle. So there's a bunch of little boxes or rectangles for me to draw my little thumbnail sketches in. And then um, I'll dive into the research, whether it's reading um, companion books or looking on the internet for pictures of these people that I'm illustrating. Um, and then I'll do a bunch of sketches, including one of the first things I do is a character sketch of the main character of the story. Um, and it's, it's easier for me to identify with the story, identify with the character if I can look at them face to face. So if I know what they look like, I know how they carry themselves, I know how, how clothing looks on them, I know how I'm going to draw them and depict them. Um, I always have that little character sketch next to me as I'm working on the rest of, of the drawings for the book. Um, so after all my research, um, I'll draw um, a little thumbnail drawing for each of the pages, as I said in my storyboard. And then I will draw a large drawing, the same size that the final book will be um, for each page. So I work at 100%. I'll draw, um, I'll kind of magnify my tiny little drawings into full-size drawings and add more detail. And this is the stage where I take a lot of reference pictures. Um, I use myself as a model. It's the easiest thing right now. So I take a lot of pictures of myself posing in the different ways that I want to draw the characters on the page. Um, so this helps me to draw them realistically with, you know, properly um, limbs of proper length and positioning that looks realistic rather than just trying to come up with it in my head. Um, after I draw all of my full-size drawings, I will scan them. I will email them to the book publisher. So the art director and the editor will look them over. Sometimes they will send my sketches, my scans of my sketches to the author of the book in case they might have some um, specific things that they want me to avoid or make sure that I do or change. So once the author, the art director, and the editor um, look at the sketches, they determine, okay, she needs to change this and this and this. They'll send me back their notes, and then I will make my changes to my sketches. I will scan them back, send them back to them, and then when they give me final approval, then I transfer the sketches onto my um, um, paper for painting. So that's a whole other process of, you know, measuring out, you know, 16 or 17 pieces of watercolor paper, taping them down on my drawing boards, and then painting them with a layer of gesso, thick white acrylic paint, and then painting them with a layer of usually hot pink or like a salmon pink acrylic paint. And then from there, I will transfer my sketches onto my salmon pink acrylic background, and I will paint my characters with oil paint, paint the skies and the grounds. And usually, if I'm doing collage as well, when the paint is drying, then I will go into my um, decorative paper collection and kind of take out, okay, well, this would look good for the shirt or this would look good for the tree in the background. And I will trace and cut the shapes of the other things that I have not painted and I will paste them onto my painting. So it's a very long process. It is an involved process. That's for sure. Yes. <laughs> the, at what point, whenever you are actually doing the painting, 
what how i know i noticed in your in that again i'm a art i'm an art newbie and i don't i won't pretend to be an expert but it seems that you uh use light and shadows uh very effectively according to my layman eye but and i'm wondering how conscious of you or how of how light and shadows affect the skin color of your characters i love the effect of light on skin i love the effect of bright um bright highlights on dark skin and i love the warm tones of a lot of the different brown skin colors skin colors that i use and i had mentioned that i i use a hot pink or salmon pink acrylic paint background for all of my paintings illustrations that's because i like the way this warm salmon color peeks through in unexpected ways, especially in like brown and dark brown skin tones. So I love light and I also love the effect of warmth kind of underneath the skin. And that's something that I try to portray when I'm painting. Well, it makes sense because I know the first book that I read of yours was Lala Salama and it was, and I kept, and I was reading it with a young child and they said, or they didn't say anything. I was said in my head that they, the the book was so warm and loving, and it just and the, the colors were so warm. So it makes sense that you have these character like a character in that sense that you know it's a very it's a mother child of relationship, and there it's such a it's a loving relationship. It makes sense that those warm colors would be reflective. Yeah, absolutely. And with that book um, in particular, the author Patricia McLaughlin sent me reference pictures of people that lived in the villages that inspired her to write this story. So I was looking at portraits of real people and that really helped me make a connection because I've never been to Tanzania. I've never, you know, rocked a baby to sleep. (laughs) So it really helped me to, um, you know, to kind of create a relationship between myself and the real people that inspired this, this book. And that's something that I also like about your art is that the these people look like people, and they you know there's there's artistic. I mean, it's not it's not a picture, but they look they look like people. They look relatable, and I think and is that is that something that you tried to consciously do is make the make these people like you said look like people that you might meet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, when I'm painting, sometimes I think this portrait of this character in this book might look like somebody's mom or somebody's sister or somebody's brother. And it really excites me that I'm inspired by, you know, faces in the world and I'm trying to put out, um, work that is respect um, that is respecting of, you know, the real people that exist in the world. So why children's books? They're your, the art, your, you seem, you know, I'm not editing. This is no way to say that, like, why, why stoop to children's books? That's not what I'm saying at all. It's just, I'm curious as to what what draws you to uh, children's books because many I've, I've interviewed other artists who have done different kinds of things in addition to children's books, but you seem very uh, focused and very talented at you at creating images for children's books and picture books. So why why those books? Um, good question. <laughs> <laughs> I love children. I love stories. I love listening to stories and being read stories. And maybe one reason I gravitate towards children's books is because my childhood in Cote d'Ivoire is such a precious kind of memory that I carry with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm always thinking about my childhood and the friends I had during my childhood and the, the places that we would go when I was a kid. So I feel like 
childhood is a really precious thing. And sometimes people look down on the art of children's books or the word illustration in general. It's kind of like a dirty word in the art world. I did not know that. <laughs> or at least that's how, you know, that's how I have felt. Um, and I feel like, well, why not elevate children's books to a level that could be, you know, equal with a fine art painting and that therefore I'm going to make 18 really great fine art paintings for this children's book and show that this, this, this art form can be really, um, can be produced with really quality art. And it's not, you know, it's not a haphazard, half thought through piece of art. I, I based, I don't want to say I slaved over this, but I gave my entire, you know, my entire heart and soul to create these pieces of art, which, which tell somebody's story. Well, I think that, I mean, I think you have produced uh, fine art in these books. If you take out the words and you could put it in a museum, if as far as I'm concerned, the, but <laughs> I, I'm wondering though, you have a book coming out this year, I believe, correct? Grandpa Cacao? Yeah. So this is the first book that you have authored and illustrated. So I'm curious as to what that process has been like for you with not having other people's words using your creating your own words and then creating images off your own words and i'm wondering what it did the images come first did the story come first how did that uh how does that work whenever it's your own words and your own uh images um well for for grandpa cacao speaking of childhood i was inspired by my father's childhood in cote d'ivoire um when we lived in cote d'ivoire when i was a kid we lived in in the big um economic capital in abidjan and I, I never experienced village life. I never experienced farm life the way that my father had when he was growing up. And um, when I was in college, he started to share, you know, little snippets of, of his life living in the village. Um, he lost both of his parents when he was pretty young. So, you know, this book started off kind of like as an in, in investigation until my father's childhood because he never spoke about it. Um, when I was when I was a child myself, myself. So um, this pro this book, Grandpa Cacao, started off with an interview that I did um, with my dad, where he talked about his childhood, and one of the things he mentioned was following his father to his father's cacao and coffee plantation in the village. So I immediately, you know, could picture you know, my father as a little boy, like walking through the bush and carrying a big empty basket on his head and, and helping his father cut down the fruits from the trees and cut the fruits open and scoop out the beans and leave them out to dry. And, um, the more I heard about this and the more research I did on my own about the process of harvesting cacao beans, get, getting them ready to ship off the chocolate factories for us to make chocolate, the more I was really, um, confused that there existed no children's book on the market that I could find that talked about this process because chocolate is such a commodity that I think everybody loves and we all take for granted, but we don't realize that a farmer thousands of miles away cut down a fruit from the tree and did all these steps to, to prepare it so that we could have chocolate. So um, it started off with an interview and then I did some sketches and then I happened to be in art school at the Rhode Island School of Design at the time. And, um, I used this, this childhood memory of, um, harvesting cacao as, um, the subject matter for a picture book that I was writing for a picture book class. So that was my first opportunity to write the story and 
illustrate the story. So there's a lot of research and sketches and paintings. And so that that um, college, you know, art school project stayed in the back of my mind after I graduated. And I met my agent who helped me really perfect um, the manuscript. And she helped me figure out, you know, what things I should cut out, what kind of things would be more interesting to add, kind of helped me streamline the story into something that would be more palatable for, um, you know, a trade book um, publisher to be interested in. So there's always back and forth between editing the text and editing the sketches, editing the text and editing the sketches. And then finally, when it came down to creating the final art for this book, um, I used my, my usual techniques of oil paint and collage, cut paper collage. But then I wanted to add another level of, of interest to the visual images and to the story. So um, I had gotten into silk screening uh, a while back, and I figured I could try to tell the, the grandfather's story through different silk screens, kind of on top of the paintings, the, the painted and collaged background. So there was a lot of like back and forth and back and forth from my writing side of my brain to my art side of my brain, and then also getting input from my agent, my editor, my art director into what would make you know the most comprehensive kind of product that could tell the story um faithfully i guess well i i haven't i've read the book yet obviously but the, <laughs> from from the cover it looks like a pretty uh very like, looks like i'm going to check it out I'll, i can say that much uh, cool thanks <laughs> uh so when do you anticipate the grandpa cacao, uh, cacao coming out when can people actually get their hands on this book you think uh, may 21st of mm. this year perfect may 21st sounds great Elizabeth Zunon, thank you so much for joining us today. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. In My Skin is a production of the University of Pittsburgh Pride Program, which stands for Positive Racial Identity Development and Early Education. Pride is part of Pitt's Office of Child Development. You can find every episode of In My Skin at racepride.pitt.edu. And you can find more about the Office of Child Development at ocd.pitt.edu. Special thanks to our funders, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and Hillman Family Foundations. This episode was produced by me, Adam Flango, with help from Pride Director Aisha White and Pride Director of Engagement, Medina Jackson. Music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Make sure to subscribe to In My Skin anywhere you get podcasts, and tell a friend if you like it. <laughs>